Welcome to Gridlock Break, a no-labels podcast featuring one-hour conversations with elected officials and thought leaders from across the political spectrum. Tune in weekly to hear insightful and nonpartisan perspectives on how America can solve our toughest problems. Today we'll hear from Dina Smeltz and Craig Kafura, who are both experts on public opinion and foreign policy with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. They will discuss their recent report about American views on foreign policy in the age of COVID-19. Let's listen in. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, very excited uh, for today's call. Uh, hopefully uh, everyone has had a chance to look at the, uh, the report that uh, Dina and Craig uh, shared with us. Uh, very, very interesting report. So, um, you know, maybe I'll just start by quickly uh, introducing Craig and Dina. So uh, Dina and Craig both work at the uh, uh, in public opinion and foreign policy over at, uh, at the Chicago Council. Um, I will allow uh, Dina and Craig, I'll allow you guys to uh, introduce yourselves, but I'll just briefly say that uh, they've both been involved uh, for a long time in these sorts of uh, foreign policy, public opinion matters. Um, and as you can tell from the report that, uh, that we've, we've seen, uh, they like to do research and then uh, draw conclusions. So uh, I found it a very, very interesting read. I know we'll all have a bunch of questions. Uh, today, uh, Dina and Craig will uh, sort of summarize and present for us uh, a little bit, and then we'll open it up for, for Q&A. Um, uh, I'm excited to hear about it because I know the media gave this a, a fair amount of attention, so uh, I'd love to hear uh, where we go from, from here and what's uh, sort of inside baseball, if you will. So Dina and Craig, why don't you take it off? And uh, 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 for everyone else, please uh, send questions. You can put them on the chat. You can send them to Megan, uh, and then we should, uh, or just raise your hand and whatnot, and, and I'll try to direct traffic, and we'll have plenty of time for questions. Great. Uh, and if you have a question as we're presenting, I think Craig and I are fine with you stopping us on the slide. Uh, if you want to wait till the end, that's great, but if you, before we flip to the next slide, or we can always flip back, so please, yeah, feel free to make it a discussion. Um, so I, yeah, I'm Dina Smeltz. Thank you so much for inviting us. This is a really nice opportunity to have some dialogue um, about the results and uh, anxious to hear what your thoughts are on them as well. Um, I have been working at the council for about eight years. I was the first senior fellow they brought on staff. Um, before this, the council has been doing the survey for a really long time, since 1974, um, but they used to uh, hire two academics to come together to work on the survey um, first every four years and every two years, and then, uh, and then they would write the report, and then the band would kind of dismantle and get back together the next time there was a report. So they didn't do a lot of follow-up analysis. So they decided to kind of double down in 2012 and bring on a senior fellow, somebody to manage this full-time. And I came from, my background is that I mostly have worked at the State Department, conducting public opinion surveys in the Bureau of Intelligence and Research. They have about 40 people there that conduct surveys around the world. And I worked first in Europe um, from 92 to about 2000. Um, and um, a lot of work in the Balkans, because that was Bosnia, Kosovo era. And then, um, and then I, when we invaded Iraq, I started working in the Middle East and South Asia. So that's uh, how I got the background in polling and foreign policy. And then uh, when this position came up, it was a nice switch to look at US attitudes towards foreign policy. It's a nice switch because I could understand it, but at the same time, it was a little I was a little frightened, to be honest. <laughs> if it's your own country and looking, dissecting opinions in your own country, it's a lot more painful sometimes. Um, but I actually have also found it surprising how pragmatic average Americans are. So uh, Craig, do you wanna talk a little bit about your background and then we can jump into the results. Sure, uh, so my name is Craig Kafura. I am uh, the Assistant Director for Public Opinion and Foreign Policy here at the Council. Uh, I've been at the council for almost 10 years, uh, so I got to uh, help bring Dina on board, and I've learned just absolutely astounding amount of stuff about public opinion research uh, and doing polls and analyzing data uh, from her uh, over the last eight years. It's been a, a great experience. Uh, my background is primarily academic, uh, so I did an undergrad at Yale in political science and then a master's degree 
at Columbia in political science. Uh, and I've really enjoyed public opinion as a field because it allows us to work on all of these interesting issues uh, from a, a really solid base of data. Um, although I do agree with Tina, it can be a little uh, concerning sometimes um, when you get honest responses from people uh, expressing views that are concerning, uh, terrifying sometimes even, I would say. Um, but I think this year's report is extremely interesting. Uh, it certainly comes at a great time. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to talking about it with all of you. So with that, let me pop up the slides. Yeah, I always feel like we're lucky because it's like being journalists with actual data, not just anecdotes. <laughs> Fun to tell a story with public opinion. So um, this year's survey, like everything else that we've been dealing with, has been pretty much overshadowed by the coronavirus. We were worried in, even just about carrying out the survey. Would people feel like they had the time and attention to even take part in the survey? Fortunately, one of the great things, that, I wouldn't say it's a great thing about the virus, but um, it hasn't affected survey work at all in the states. In fact, in some cases, people are home and they have more, they, they have more time for things like this. So um, didn't hurt our work at all. But of course, the pandemic itself was a shock to the country in terms of public health and in terms of our economic growth. Um, but in some ways, it illuminated the importance of foreign policy and that just as a problem that starts in Wuhan, China can find its way in the United States too. And just the world is very interconnected and globalized and um, we're not an island unto ourselves. So um, the next slide shows that um, really what our big questions were for, for the survey. So one about the pandemic, how serious a threat it is relative to other threats whether it has impacted American public views on foreign policy, did it make them more, more willing to withdraw from world affairs or did it kind of cement their views on staying involved in, in the world? Um, and then what does it all mean? We tried to draw some conclusions for what does it mean for the 2020 presidential elections? Because as it's pretty well known, people don't generally vote for foreign policy unless there's perhaps a war going on or um, worried about ISIS or terrorism um, in some points, but, uh, but still there's always the question of who's going to be a greater commander in chief. And like we said, there's a lot of knock on effects of foreign policy on globalization and jobs and even immigration. So these are all issues that don't really stand alone and then do mesh together. So we're actually gonna focus a lot on where Republicans and Democrats differ. That's why the title of the report is Divided We Stand. But, um, and we've seen some sharpening of differences, uh, especially longstanding differences in the survey data. But we're gonna start with some areas where actually Republicans and Democrats agree, which will be the next slide. Um, so this is our barometer of internationalism among the American public. It, we asked the survey since we started asking it. It actually goes all the way back to 1947, um, right after the World War. And um, just, as, just as we found in the past, in general, Americans, a large majority of Americans support staying involved in world affairs. This year, 68% overall said that the United States should remain involved in world affairs. We have a second question where we ask, should Americans have um, a shared leadership role, a dominant leadership role, or no leadership role, and fewer than 10% have consistently said uh, it should have a no leadership role at all. Um, most people say that it should have a shared leadership. So they don't wanna run the world I uh, don't want all the responsibilities of the world, but um, Americans do support staying involved. And, and you'll see 68% is a pretty healthy number. It's um, one of our highest numbers along with 71% back in 2002. And this doesn't really differ, but it's large majorities of Republicans, Democrats, and independents support taking part in world affairs. We've also asked, um, we've asked questions that that try to get at what people have in mind when we ask this question. What do you mean by taking an active part or staying out? And if you're interested, we can talk about that in the question and answer section. 
So the next slide is about alliances. This is another area of agreement between Republicans and Democrats. Um, this is a little bit of a complicated slide to talk about quickly, but what we end up doing is adding the dark blue, mostly benefit the US, with the lightest blue, benefit both the US and uh, our security partners. Because basically we designed this when President Trump started criticizing uh, US participation in alliances. It was kind of a break from all the presidents in our lifetime to, to make those criticisms and raise those questions. So um, that's why we designed the question and we figure whether if, if Americans see it as a win-win for the allies and for us, that's a positive. If they just see the United States getting something out of it more than allies, it's also a positive in, in putting it in that context. So actually what's happened is in East Asia, when you add them together, it's about six and 10, say, um, it's a United States, and that's pretty much even with what it's been in past surveys. And the measures for Europe and the Middle East have actually grown uh, in the past year, which is interesting given that President Trump has really pushed our allies more so publicly than um, previous presidents. I mean, he's definitely not the first president to have wanted our allies to step up and and um, pay for their share, but he has done so in a much more public way. And he's probably raised uh, the profile of NATO for average Americans more than um, previous presidents as well, just because when he tweets about NATO, I think people probably start Googling, um, or did start Googling when he first started doing that. Um, and then the other uh, items that there is shared agreement on is free trade. You see it's a very healthy majorities, and again, this is across party lines, support free trade. 85% um, say that uh, international trade is good for US relations with other countries. 82% say it is good for consumers like you. 74% say for the US economy, and 59% say for creating jobs. So this is one area where um, our team thought oh, we're probably going to see a hit on trade given the economic um, reality. And um, we were actually surprised that there wasn't more of a drop. There isn't, this drop itself is not very partisan. It's pretty much equal drops across the board. Um, and it's still really pretty high. Where we saw the biggest shift on these numbers was in 2017. So uh, the year after President Trump was elected, we actually saw an increase, and this was mostly due to uh, Republicans saying that they uh, increasing their support for free trade. Um, and we can talk about why that might be, but that's what, uh, what really brought those numbers up. Democrats have for a while now been a, a pro-free trade electorate, which is interesting because it's the opposite of what often happens in Congress, um, which is confusing sometimes when we when we display the numbers. But um, yeah, they they are the more consistently pro free trade electorate among the public. Um, and then the next slide is about globalization. Also, majorities across the board support it. Um, Fifty-five percent of Republicans, sixty-two percent of Independents, and seventy-five percent of Democrats. Here again, there were a lot, a lot of headlines and articles with headlines that said the coronavirus is means the end of globalization um, as we know it. That was definitely one title using the song reference. Um, but um, really it's been so pretty solid, pretty much the same as it was in 2014, 2016, and 2017 overall. The biggest shifts here are, have been among Democrats, again, showing the, um, the more pro-trade orientation of Democrats since two, after 2012, we really saw a, a 10 percentage point jump in support for Democrats, um, and in some ways, this might be sort of an overcorrection on the part of Democrats, meaning often when a president, when the public or a portion of the public considers the moves of a president to be too far in one direction or another, they might 
signal um, a greater number of support for a particular item like globalization because they um, basically are saying you've gone too far and we need you to pull back a little bit in some of your rhetoric and actions. So that could be um, something that's going on on behalf of Democrats here in reaction to President Trump's putting tariffs on China and um, and uh, criticizing trade deals that have been in um, have been established in the past, or at least re renegotiating them. I think at this point, um, okay, so that's where the agreements are. Uh, now we're going to get to the part where Republicans and Democrats seem worlds apart in some ways. Um, for example, you would think that in uh, identifying what are the most dangerous threats facing the United States, there might be at least some agreement, but on the top five threats, um, there isn't a lot of agreement. There's just a little bit of overlap. For Republicans, the, the greatest threat or the largest percentage of Republicans say that the greatest threat is China, um, and the Democrats say it is COVID. Um, so China as a threat, I can't remember what it is for Democrats, um, but I think it's in the, is it in the 50s? Craig, do you remember? Seven or 48. Okay, so yeah, that's what it, it's, it is, I think, 47 or 48. So it's, so China is a threat for Republicans, 67% and COVID is 48-ish percent. And it's the other way around for COVID. For Democrats, COVID is number one. Um, and China is below half, um, just below half, so about half. Um, and then overall, for all Americans, COVID is the biggest threat. Um, so that's kind of an, a really interesting finding that just the top threat is so different in that COVID, which is still raging across the country and the world, um, is not seen as, as much of a threat for Republicans. That's because they think that the US government is doing a decent job um, managing it. We know from the survey that we've done, we asked that question and uh, Democrats do not think that the government management of it has been effective. And Republicans in general tend to find that traditional security threats like China, terrorism, and Iran's nuclear program are the ones that are most critical. And Democrats um, take either these sort of universal concerns of COVID and climate change that affect the world or very domestic issues like racial inequality and economic inequality in the United States itself. Those are those rank very low for Republicans as a foreign policy issue. Doesn't mean they don't necessarily see them as important issues, but as a foreign policy issue, it's very low. Um, same token, immigration is a huge issue for Republicans and has consistently been one, um, and it's a very low one for Democrats. And then um, finally, foreign interference in American elections. That's really just a, demo, a threat named by Democrats. Independents are interesting because it's the only one that in their top five polarization ranks is a high number. Uh, what's been interesting this year compared to I think every other year is that Democrats are more likely to see threats facing the United States than Republicans. Usually it's the other way around. Um, just a higher de degree, a uh, higher number that identify threats is critical. This again, like I said, could be registering a partisan dislike for the current administration um, and a concern that um, I think a lot of a lot of the negativity is about concern that that the U.S. government isn't handling a lot of these threats, especially their top five threats, in an effective way. So now Craig's gonna go through the rest of the slides, and then we can turn to discussion. Thanks. So yeah, Dina's covered the parts where we have a lot of agreement. So I'm going to be focusing mostly on the areas where Republicans and Democrats uh, end up on in very different positions. Uh, one of those is actually how Republicans and Democrats think about the United States itself. Uh, so this is a question that we've asked for several years that tries to get at this concept of American exceptionalism. Uh, and he says, some people say that the United States has a unique character that makes it the greatest country in the world. And others say that every country is unique and the US is no greater than other nations. Uh, as you can see, Republicans generally think 80% that the US is the greatest country in the world. 
and when we first asked this question in 2012, uh, two thirds of Democrats agreed. Uh, that's no longer the case. Uh, only 35% of Democrats in this year's survey said that the US is the greatest country in the world. Uh, instead, a majority said that every country is unique and the US is no greater than other nations. This did not just start uh, from 2019 to 2020, as you can see. Democratic views of America as an exceptional nation have been on the decline since we first asked it, uh, but this is a 12-point drop over the course of a year, which is a bit sharp. The two parties have also drawn fairly strikingly different lessons from the pandemic. Uh, so while 80% of Democrats say that the coronavirus outbreak has made it clear that it is more important for the U.S. to coordinate and collaborate with other countries to solve global issues, only 40% of Republicans agree. Instead, a majority of Republicans say that their lesson is that the U.S. should be self-sufficient as a nation, so we don't need to depend on others, and 58% of them agree with that statement. And this sort of gets back to some of the gaps that we saw uh, when Dino was showing the trend on globalization. Uh, so while Republicans do have very favorable views of international trade, uh, they're a little bit less uh, likely to say that globalization is good for the country. And when you get at these questions of being reliant on other countries, you do see Republican support drop off even further. And these divisions, both on threats and lessons from the pandemic, uh, are also reflected in how Democrats and Republicans want to approach U.S. foreign policy. For Democrats, they're looking for an approach that is rooted more in internationalism and multilateralism. So majorities of Democrats say that the United States should participate more in international organizations, that it should be more willing to provide humanitarian aid, that it should be more willing to sign international agreements, uh, and 47% favor uh, signing more free trade agreements with other countries. And that matches what we saw uh, in that graph on trade with high levels of support, and a high percentage of Democrats seeing it as good for the US, for the US economy, for job creation, and so forth. Republican priorities are a bit different. Uh, they're generally more inclined to support more coercive measures internationally. So plurality or majority, 44% uh, here, uh, say that the US should conduct more drone strikes against suspected terrorists in other countries. 43% uh, favor increased sanctions in other countries uh, or increased tariffs against other countries' goods. Although there is one interesting point of overlap here. Uh, a third of Republicans say that the U.S. should sign more free trade agreements, and 47% favor you know, the same number of free trade agreements as now. So again, there is a bit of overlap here on trade, uh, but as Dean and I can get into in the Q&A, that is likely for somewhat different conceptions of international trade. Another point where these differences really show up is in dealing with China. Uh, China has obviously been a major topic throughout this administration, and particularly this year, uh, given that the year started off with a phase one trade agreement between the U.S. and China, uh, and then ended up devolving into the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Americans today are split on whether or not the United States should undertake friendly cooperation and engagement with China, or whether it should actively work to limit the growth of China's power. And this is a shift from previous trend. From 2006 through 2019, consistently two-thirds of Americans said that the U.S. should undertake that friendly cooperation and engagement approach. And this division does uh, play out along partisan lines, with 60% of Democrats favoring the engagement and cooperation approach, but two-thirds of Republicans saying the U.S. should actively work to limit the growth of China's power. Uh, this also shows up in a number of other questions about China, uh, which we can get into if you're curious later. Uh, and finally, as you might expect, Republicans and Democrats do not entirely agree uh, on federal spending and federal spending priorities. Uh, Republicans are more likely to favor increased spending on things like immigration enforcement and federal assistance to state and local police and law enforcement, uh, while Democrats, either a plurality or a majority, favor cuts to those programs. There are a few areas of overlap here, though, that I do want to highlight. Majorities of both Republicans and Democrats say that the federal government should spend more money on improving public infrastructure, uh, on federal aid to education, uh, and a majority of Democrats, as well as a plurality of Republicans, favor increased spending on Social Security, 48% of Republicans and 69% of Democrats, uh, and on health care, 89% of Democrats uh, and 46% of Republicans. 
Uh, so while there are certainly differences in priority and likely in intensity, uh, there are a few areas where you see somewhat similar priorities, uh, at least something you might be able to get to an agreement on. So our general conclusions from the 2020 Chicago Council survey are that we see continued support for international engagement, for US alliances around the world, for international trade and for globalization. But we see very sharp partisan divisions on the gravity of the coronavirus, the effectiveness of the government's response, and the best ways to achieve America's foreign policy goals. And broadly, Republicans and Democrats have simply drawn different conclusions from the experience of the pandemic. We see this generally as raising the stakes for next week's election and for the future of US foreign policy. Uh, in general, foreign policy is not the issue where we see these really sharp partisan divisions. And in many cases, these are somewhat new. So with that, I'll open it up to Q&A. Okay, thank you uh, very, very much. That was super interesting and I appreciated the, the slides. It seemed to me, um, I may not have done my homework well, but it looked like there were some slides in there that I had not seen before, which I appreciated and I was scribbling notes furiously. Um, so uh, first I wanna remind everyone, if you have questions, uh, you can put them up on the, the Zoom chat feature if you want, you can send them to Megan. Um, however you'd like to do it. Um, I would love to start us off with a couple of questions. Um, I, th I think that, um, you know, sort of the first question that I found myself asking as I read through this, um, and particularly given the, the title that you gave the report, uh, um, this Divided We Stand, was sort of, okay, there's, there's that chunk we seem to agree on across parties, and then there's this divide. And so the logical question, particularly from, from the group of no labels, what I think of first is, okay, where is there the potential for common ground? Where do you see uh, uh, this, this bridge between the, the, the shared views and the starkly contrasting views? And do you see any obvious places to start to work towards uh, uh, compromise that could advance our interests? Um. Uh, so we, speaking from the public side, uh, public opinion side, um, I, I can see quite a few areas um, where there could be common ground. You know, a lot depends on what goes on in Capitol Hill versus public opinion. So, and we can have that discussion. But um, one thing I always point out is that on the most long-standing partisan issues, immigration and climate change. So Craig, maybe we can put those slides up to show you. So these are not new partisan divides, but have been growing over time. The threat of climate change, we'll start with that. That one, um, when we first asked about climate change and before that we asked about global warming, which also has a partisan divide though, for some reason it's a little bit so it used to be a little bit smaller, it might not be anymore. Um, but back in the day, in 2008, 58% of Democrats saw it as a, a threat versus 19% uh, of Republicans. So already that was a 39 percentage point gap. Now it's grown mostly because Democrats have taken on this issue more and more and the progressive wing in fact, you know, it's very important for them and for young people, young Democrats in particular, also for young Republicans, but definitely for young Democrats. So now there's this 54 percentage point difference on this. You look at this and you want to kind of say, how are we ever going to bridge this, right? But then we asked some other questions about, they're not, it's, to be honest, it's not the best question, but it gets to, the idea is good. So we have a question, it's very long, um, and we didn't ask it this year, but we asked it last year, and it is, it shows a three-part question about, um, on the issue of climate change, do you think it is a problem that is, needs immediate fixing, even if it takes substantial costs to, to um, address the issue? Do you think it's a medium-term um, problem that we can work at gradually trying to do something to solve it and hopefully without significant costs something like that moderate costs and the and the third option is it's it's not an issue we don't need to worry about it so a majority of 
Democrats say it's an immediate problem and needs needs to we need to address it right away even if it has substantial cause but a majority of republicans it's a mix it's a little bit of a divide more say it's a it's a problem that we need to fix gradually but it is a problem and then another portion say it's an immediate issue that needs addressing right away um so and I remember I was in um, Wisconsin giving a talk to a World Affairs Council and afterwards one of the Republican local leaders came up to me and said that, you know, we find if you don't use the term climate change or if you don't, if you just say um, we need to fix this, the water is rising in this river, we need to do something about it, um, we need to come up with some kind of solution, they found that if you use the language that doesn't press people to say it's man-made, it's not man-made. Um, you know, it's, it's a problem because we want, we want science to be uh, trusted and a credible and used as a credible source, but unfortunately it, it isn't always, and it's not just people that lack education. Um, it just has been a politicized issue and the terminology has been politicized. But if you talk about a specific project that needs to be done and you, can come to a solution that is not political. Um, they said that they said it was their experience that it had worked in that case, and that you can get people together to solve an issue if you don't press for uh, saying who's to blame necessarily. So I think there are some ways around climate change, and there are some ways to address it. Um, I don't think necessarily the way it's been discussed in the presidential debates has been that helpful only because it pits it as such opposite sides and we should all be talking about how it affects all of us and this is one of those issues that's domestic and international has ramifications for both so the other issue was climate of immigration another long-standing issue but um, not always a partisan issue as you can see between 1998 and 2002 republicans and democrats were actually the same. It was after the September 11 attacks and, and moving past 2002, uh, Democrats ca came to see this issue as less and less of a threat. And it's uh, still a very threatening um, issue for Republicans. Here too, we have asked um, two ways about getting the idea of um, whether Americans across political affiliation support a path the citizenship for undocumented immigrants and whether um, they support greater enforcement um, and a, a couple of other items. Um, and both majorities of both Democrats and Republicans support a path to citizenship if it has some conditions attached to it. Um, it's higher for Republican, I'm sorry, it's higher for Democrats. It's a very large majority of Democrats who support it, but also a majority of Republicans. Um, and if you throw in uh, the possibility of a work permit, um, that makes it an even larger majority for Republicans. So, and then um, on the flip side, for Republicans, a larger majority support increasing enforcement at the border um, and uh, and Democrats also support it, but just by not as high majorities. And then we also asked a question where, and we haven't asked it for a while because it just seems so unlikely to come up in the future, but comprehensive immigration reform where we put the two together in a package and we found large majorities of Republicans and Democrats support it. So those are two areas. I think, um, Craig, maybe you can talk a little bit about China and how some of the areas of overlap on that too. I think that's another area where sometimes the way the policy is couched um, has created a more politicized environment around China. Yeah, um, this is sort of a moving strictly into the, the foreign policy realm. Uh, there are some aspects of U.S.-China policy that get support from both majorities of Republicans and majorities of Democrats. Uh, and top of that list is sanctioning Chinese officials for human rights abuses. Um, this is something that's very popular with uh, Democrats, Republicans, and independents, uh, roughly the same proportions, 87%. Uh, there's also broad support for negotiating arms control agreements between the U.S. and China. 
um, which there's been some noise about that. Um, there's also broad support, particularly among Republicans, but also among two thirds of Democrats for prohibiting US companies from selling sensitive high-tech products to China. Uh, and conversely, there's a similar level of support for prohibiting Chinese technology companies from building communications networks in the United States. Uh, and then building off of the, the sort of the bipartisanship, the, there is some bipartisanship around climate change. Uh, we see that 86% of Democrats and 58% of Republicans uh, favor the US working with China to limit climate change. Um, so there is a degree of bipartisanship on some of these issues. Now on other issues, um, particularly those that have been real focuses of the Trump administration, like uh, restricting the number of Chinese students, uh, restricting uh, trade more broadly between the two countries, uh, the tariffs, restricting scientific research exchanges, those break out much more strongly along partisan lines with Republicans in favor and Democrats opposed. Uh, but on those other issues, you do get uh, you know, a certain degree of bipartisan uh, agreement. And then I would also go back uh, to some extent to some of those budget areas. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it would be, uh, I don't know that you're going to get, you know, large bipartisan majorities in Congress voting for increased healthcare spending and increased infrastructure spending and uh, things like that. But you do get large majorities of Democrats and majorities of Republicans backing, uh, spending on infrastructure, spending on healthcare, spending on social security, uh, these real domestic priorities. Uh, and the Congress is going to have to figure out what it wants to spend money on uh, with you know, all of this going on uh, in the next few months and then starting in January with the new Congress. And those are really long-term consistent bipartisan um, desires to increase those areas that Craig mentioned. It's not just this year, it's been decades that they generally say those. They don't. Defense spending goes up and down, but not these domestic. And then I would just say, in a general sense, um, Americans do support diplomacy first on an international crisis. So, um, you know, rather than jumping to the use of force or to a coercive type of approach, Americans generally do like diplomacy. They want to exhaust diplomacy, um, sanctions, things like that, not a peaceful ways of defusing conflicts. Um, they and it's really interesting to see when we've put an example. Americans, I was going to say that they also generally support international and trade agreements until messaging comes out that is critical um, of them. I think their their knee jerk, you know, because Americans don't have a lot of detailed information about trade agreements or international agreements like climate change or the Iran agreement. Um, and their general inclination is, yeah, we support it. When we asked about the Iran agreement, I think in 2014, we just talked about an outline of an agreement because we weren't even sure what was going to be in it and majority supported it. Um, then as the political climate and messaging around it heated up on both sides, that's when we started to see um, a lot of division. And the last time we asked about it, which I think was in 2019 or 2018, about the Iran agreement, 53% of Republicans actually supported it because it had been kind of off the radar. Um, same with trade. We, when we asked about NAFTA, there were, uh, we saw growing support for NAFTA up until I think it was 2018 or 2017. And then, um, there was rising support overall, but much higher support among Democrats, much, it might not have even been a majority among Republicans. Um, and then when it was renamed USMCA now, majority of Republicans also support it. So I, I also say that messaging from elite, and this is no surprise, but messaging can change people's opinions on uh, underlying values um, once they receive a critique or or an endorsement can affect their views, but um, but basically diplomacy first is the way I think Americans generally and probably most people abroad too look at the best way to solve the problem. So that's super interesting. Um, I want to take that the, the moment now to to jump in. Um, you you both covered a ton there, and I appreciate like there was like a layer deeper on some of this stuff. Um, I know we've got. We had a few questions come in, and some folks 
you know, sort of let Megan know the subject. And so there's a, that's helpful because I can kind of group them and we can get a little bit of a discussion. So I'm going to try to keep us moving a little bit to make sure we cover these. Uh, I'm going to jump to China because uh, Craig, you covered a bit on China. And I think we have two, two people at least that I saw had questions on China. So maybe we can get both China questions out there and then we can have you all respond and come back a little bit. So uh, Gene Sykes, I think you had a question and then we'll go to Giles Miller for a question. Then we can have you, uh, give you guys a chance to respond. Uh, I did a question on China and I think you've dealt with it a little bit in just defining the, the issue with China a little bit more narrowly, but I've been under the impression politically that the, the Democrats in particular in the Senate are as skeptical about China as the Republicans. The Republicans, when you listen to them, they'll say that uh, anti-Chinese Communist Party sentiment polls higher than any other issue with their constituents. Whereas the Senate uh, Democrats, if you talk to certain Democrats who are members of the Intelligence Committee, they'll say the Chinese have behaved really badly and we need to deal with the Chinese Communist Party as a threat. So a slightly different dimension and your, your uh, data tends to reveal the same thing, where there's a security issue and it becomes evident there's a real security issue, then there seems to be a, a higher correlation between Democrats and Republicans. But as you go broader or broader into other commercial aspects, should we be cooperating on climate change? Should we uh, be more open to global trade? Uh, the Democrats seem to be a lot, Democrats you've polled seem to be a lot more open than Republicans. And it maybe leads to a question of who, who leads these values? How do Republicans and Democrats get to their point of view? Is it uh, you know, two different uh, sort of leadership groups? Or are they sensing different things from the same data? And I don't know if you have any, uh, any points of view about that, because it's very interesting to watch these slightly different dimensions from some of the same uh, pieces of information. Okay, and then uh, thank you, Gina. Now, Giles, do you want to throw your question out there as well? And we'll see if we can tackle them both. Sure. Um, so I've actually been kind of happy about uh, the being a little bit more confrontational in, in terms of trade, at least getting into a negotiation. And uh, and I want to say at one of the presentations I'd been to with Lighthizer, he said, there is a, a very good likelihood that we will end up with some sort of permanent um, arrangement with tariffs over China because there will be some things that China will not be willing to, to do internally and we won't go back to the way things were before. My fear is that if there is a Biden administration, uh, there might be a knee-jerk reaction to kind of uh, throw out all the things that have been done under the Trump administration and, and sort of based on the, the polling that you're seeing here, my question is how likely do you think it is that, uh, that there'll be a significant change in U.S. policy towards China? Okay, I'll do a, I'll do a quick start, Craig, you can follow up. Um, we were surprised in previous years, it really was only this year where China jumped up to be a, a majority level threat. And it is true that it is the top threat for Republicans. Um, oh, great. So you can see that um, it really didn't hit uh, above 50% until 2019. And that's, um, so we wrote a piece about, hey, the, the national security strategy just said that China and Russia are the top threats, the geopolitical, rivalry is going to be the greatest thing and uh, greatest threat to the United States. And we weren't seeing a reaction among the public that was quite the same. Well, now it has caught up. For Republicans, I think it's a lot of the rhetoric coming from the White House. Um, but for Democrats, I think it's um, largely, and, and some Republicans too, for the spike, uh, largely because of the COVID, uh, their management of the COVID crisis. It could also be because of what's going on in Hong Kong too. Um, but the reason I think COVID is because there've been a lot of other polls that have shown that um, a very large majority of Americans say that China has handled it poorly. They also say the United States has handled it poorly. But um, for some people, I think they might even blame China. So that's, I'll let Craig take the rest. Yeah, uh, Gene, it's a good question on you know, if you do, you do get this really strong bipartisan skepticism of China. Uh, I mean, if you, you know, talk to anybody who works in foreign affairs on China in the House or the Senate, uh, you get these really bipartisan messages of concern, particularly when you're talking about, you know, human rights legislation, right? Uh, that's all passing with 
uh, strong bipartisan support and everyone's just uh, agreeing uh, very nicely. On the items where you see splits among the public, it's sort of on those other issues, right? So on human rights, you do get that really strong bipartisan support among the public. Uh, and in a lot of these other areas where you're likely to see, I think, movement on uh, some of this high-tech trade on uh, sort of the 5G issues, you do get bipartisan agreement among the public. Where you don't are when US-China policy is running into other areas uh, that the public has other views on. So if you're talking, uh, you know, especially about things like limiting Chinese students to the US, then you're running into pre-existing opinions on immigration, uh, where Republicans are just generally more skeptical about immigration and Democrats are much more favorable toward immigration. Uh, and on trade, I think specifically, Giles, uh, this is where uh, who is in the White House matters a lot. Um, and what you heard from every Democratic candidate, you think back to you know, the first two Democratic debates, oh God, was that summer 2019? Um, you could string together their China policy, you know, just taking a few words from each person who spoke into a coherent sentence, right? It was that uh, they, they think the tariffs were the right idea, but they thought Trump was doing it the wrong way and they do it better because they do it with friends and allies. Uh, and that's, as far as I know, that is what Biden has said in the little that he has said about this, because he certainly doesn't seem to want to commit to rolling them back. Uh, in fact, the last I heard, he said that he would uh, discuss it with uh, U.S. allies before making any moves on the tariffs, likely because he does see that as giving the U.S. some leverage, and he's going to want all the leverage he can get when it comes to China. And it's a nice early show of you know favoring those alliances and trying to rebuild some trust there. I would be I'd be very surprised if he. Uh, rolled into the White House and pulled out all the tariffs. Um, I don't think it'll be particularly popular with uh, Congress. I don't think it'll be particularly popular with uh, the people who are making China policy in his administration. Um, I also suspect that once a Democrat is in the White House, you might see stronger support for uh, some of these more coercive measures among Democrats. Come back next year and we'll have new data on it. Thank you. Thank you. All right. I want to I wanna keep moving. I know there were, I have like four or five questions lined up, so we'll see how quickly we can go through them. So there were a couple of questions related to the respondents. So uh, Pam Humphrey and Howard Morgan uh, both had questions in that regard. Pam? Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for this presentation. It's fascinating. Um, I'm curious about, uh, and I came in a little bit late, so I may have missed it, but what was your, sa what was your sample for this uh, questionnaire? It's in the back of the report, um, the, the, the very, very back, there's a methodology page, but it was uh, to over 2,000 people. It was conducted online through an online nationwide representative sample, um, meaning uh, it was a panel, sorry. Um, we use a, an organization called Ipsos. Uh, they have one of the largest panels that's representative of the whole country. They are able to draw, um, a lot of online panels are not um, up to snuff in terms of their methodological rigor, but this one um, takes great pains to do so uh, and is able to have a, if you don't do it right, you can't really design a margin of error and um, right. you do it in a way that is uh, based on addresses, not just whoever answers the, the email phone. that pops up on your screen. Uh, I'd imagine that, on, do you find that the online uh, was, gave you more um, direct and honest answers than, let's say, phone calls or? We, interesting. Um, I don't know that these questions are that sensitive, that people wouldn't be dishonest. It's more, I think the, it's more for us, um, it's such a, it, it's, it's much more complicated. The wording, the questions are more complicated than your average poll that you would get on a telephone. Right. It's long. It's a, like, 20 minute questionnaire. So it's much better for us because people can take breaks and we yeah. want to think about the questions. And we know that this isn't something that most Americans know a ton about. So we want them to, um, they, they know more than I, I ever thought before I started working in American public opinion, but this way they get to contemplate and take their time on the question. So it works much better for us. We get a much, much higher response rate than we would by telephone, especially now with all that's encouraging to, to hear. Um, Howard Thank Morgan, you. Howard, do you have Thanks. a- Again, a similar question on the respondents. Uh, and it's been reported that, at least with, with election polling, uh, there, there may be a difficulty getting responses from Republicans. 
compared to Democrats. And I'm wondering if you think that's generally true. And if you're seeing that in any of your own polling on issues that you're just, the door's being shut and you have to, you know, knock on many more Republican doors to get the same number that you, uh, you're looking for. Greg, do it. We haven't really seen that. Uh, in general, uh, we, in general, you'll see higher numbers of Democrats in the sample than Republicans because there are generally more people who identify as Democrats than Republicans uh, just among the public. Uh, I would note that we do get a fairly good chunk of folks who identify first as independents. Uh, and they, a lot of these folks do actually lean toward one party or another, uh, either toward Democrats or Republicans. Uh, and these, these leaners actually look like strong partisans if you dig down into their opinions. Uh, I would also note we don't weight our sample by party ID, uh, since thankfully we're not trying to do uh, election forecasting. Uh, it's one of the nice things about this time of year. Our job is much simpler uh, doing policy polling. Uh, I would say overall in this sample, uh, for reference, 36% uh, of our respondents said that they were Democrats, 34% uh, as independents, and 29% as Republicans. Uh, and that's fairly consistent with uh, surveys that we've run for the last several decades. Okay, so uh, thank you. Uh, I'm going to try to move quickly. So I have, I have three in the queue. So I'm going to go uh, Maxine Clark, then Ron Bergamini, and then uh, uh, we'll move to Bill Galston with a question, and then he'll close. Uh, Maxine? Thank you. Thank you for this great report. It's really very interesting. I was curious as to the demographic breakdown of the chart. How do you get a cross-section of Americans uh, college educated, not college educated, you know, under 35, over 35, how do you go about doing that? Or do you just see who responds? Uh, is it more balanced than that? Uh, it's very easy to do that because uh, the people in the panel, they have, we have all their profile data, we have all their demographic data, and we just run it through a, a statistical program. If you're interested in particular questions by a particular demographic, we're happy to run that for you. No, I was just curious in general if it comes out um, so there's any indications of the future from the young, younger people that you, um, any particular questions that come out, like I think you identify climate change as one of those that younger people felt more strongly about regardless of party. Uh, but I wonder if there's any others that we can see some direction from, because uh, we have a lot of young members in the no uh, labels or in the problem solvers caucus uh, sure. on both sides, younger population. The two things that stick out, um, from my looking at the data is uh, climate change, yes, it's a top, top goal. Um, but the other is uh, that question about uh, American exceptionalism, younger people are much lower than um, older people. I, I don't know if it's because of socialization or because they're plugged into the rest of the world uh, through the internet grown up with it. But yeah, they're much less likely to think the United States is an exceptional country. Uh, those are the big ones. Uh, other than that, I think mostly we have found they're less likely to support the use of force, but they're also, they have less strong opinions um, on foreign policy than older Americans at this point. That might change as they go through the life cycle. Mm -hmm. We have a report, if you're interested, we have a report on generational differences uh, on all of these issues. We can send that your way. Thank you. Uh, all right, let's go to Ron. Let's try to do 60 seconds for Ron's question and then we'll move to Bill. Now, it'll be quick because it's really very similar to Maxine's. If I lived under a rock for six or seven years, I would have thought we had some things back, backwards, like on trade, globalization. Following up with Maxine, how deep did you go? Zip codes, length of people being in a party, urban, rural. It seems the, the Republicans and Democrats just don't offer us as much insight as some of the other things would be. What are your thoughts on that? Thank you. Um, I'll just quickly answer We have to be brief and concise in the report or it would be 120 pages and nobody would read it. So we stuck, and because it's an election year, we stuck to partisan divides, but also it's, this, it's, this, it's the biggest factor, party, party ID, actually on so many issues, um, but definitely on, on issues that we look at. And again, happy to run anything you're particularly interested in. We can look at, you know, urban, rural over time. We have, we have reports on that too. Probably if you're curious about a demographic, we probably have already written a report on it that we can share. That's great, that's great. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, why don't we move to Bill? Bill, uh, I, I, I hear you had a question and then uh, nobody closes like you do. So why don't you take it from here? Eric, I think in the interest of time, uh, in part anyway, and go straight to the close. Uh, and my close actually is going to focus 
on a question that you put on the table pretty early on, namely, what is there in this report that may provide a blueprint or at least a signpost for a greater measure of bipartisanship in policymaking uh, in both domestic and foreign policy? As, as, the, as the older people on this call will remember, there used to be a saying that foreign policy differences end at the water's edge. Well, that was then, uh, and clearly they don't any longer. But uh, I, think there are, I think there are some real signs in this report uh, that the two parties might be able to come together on what is arguably the most important issue facing the foreign policy establishment, namely what is a sustainable long-term policy stance towards China? Uh, and I confidently predict that that issue is going to be stage center uh, throughout this decade and probably the next one the next one as well. I'd also point out that there are some important commonalities in the area of domestic policy uh, that this report has pointed out. You have super majorities of Democrats and Republicans, for example, who are interested in upping federal investment in infrastructure. That's been true for a long time. Nothing has happened, but with appropriate conversation between the two political parties, there's certainly evidence that it could. I'll pick out another example, and that is immigration reform. Your report is the most recent, but hardly the first, to have observed that you have strong majorities in both political parties, more on the Democratic side than the Republican Party, the Republican side, in favor of comprehensive immigration reform including a path to citizenship. It wasn't that long ago that a comprehensive immigration reform bill passed with 68 votes in the Senate, including almost one third of Republicans. And not that much has changed in the area of public opinion. This brings me to the bottom line, which is where no labels is. And that is, we are trying to provide opportunities for serious conversation between the political parties, not dominated by the party leadership, uh, but conversations where the rank and file of the party can, can actually have frank talks in the, in the interests of coming to some sort of compromise. Uh, and there are, we believe, and your report does nothing to weaken our belief, uh, that there are multiple opportunities in both foreign policy and domestic policy for this kind of conversation, which would be supported by the majority of the American people across party lines. I'm not saying that there isn't political polarization. All I'm saying is that a very you know, blunt, unnuanced, top-down approach to polarization really obscures and ignores the many areas where progress is possible. And it remains to be seen whether Mr. Trump in his second term or Joe Biden in, you know, in his first would be willing to take these signals of potential bipartisan cooperation seriously enough to put some real weight behind them to make it happen. Uh, and if that happens, uh, your report will have contributed some evidence in you know, that might embolden policymakers in both, uh, both foreign and domestic policy to go farther down the road of bipartisanship than either party has been willing to go in recent years. So I view this as a very hopeful report and we're very grateful uh, for your willingness to take out your time to present it to you. And we hope we can invite you back uh, the next time one of your fascinating reports uh, speaks to topics that we're concerned with. So once again, thank you, and I think we're adjourned. Smeltz and Kafura say voters do not generally choose a candidate on the basis of foreign policy, but that's starting to change amid the global COVID-19 pandemic. As indicated by the title of their report, Divided We Stand, Democrats and Republicans do not generally agree on issues of foreign policy. But Smeltz and Kafura do see a few areas of common ground between the parties including a widespread belief that foreign trade is important to the American economy and a fear that COVID-19 will lead to the end of globalization. 
Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast. 